I am constantly making the joke that I will be in school for my entire life. Much in the same way that a high school teacher would say the entire thing. You would have gone to primary school, then had to go and get a degree in education. So you went to some sort of college, maybe you got a master's degree, and then you go right back into any of those primary schools and get right back to going to school. But some people find themselves flip-flopping back into school one more time in a learning capacity. And one of those said people is Jake Barnett. This ex-school teacher is going to talk with us today about making the transition from being a teacher to going to something towards higher education, like being in graduate school. And how he learned that from teaching, you can learn a lot about learning. That sounds a little bit obscure, but we'll just leave him to explain that rather than me. My name is Louis Colabertolo, and I am trying my best to get a PhD in food science at the University of Guelph, and I like talking with graduate students, and in this case, I like talking with graduate students who were at one point graduate students, and then not graduate students, and then back to graduate students. So today's episode with Jake Barnett is going to be an interesting one, where we get to see how a real live student has been a student his entire life in a teaching capacity in a learning capacity and now in a learning to teaching teaching learning capacity but i'm not the teacher here we'll leave that to jake and he does it a lot better than i do so listen to your teacher but also keep in mind that we're both graduate students even though jake was a teacher at one point we are still both graduate students and we don't know everything which is why you're listening to an episode of we know some stuff Hi, Jake. How are you doing today? Doing the best I can. So happy to join you and have a conversation and uh, yeah, see where we go. That is the truth. Can you do us a favor and walk through this tangled web of an educational history of yours? Sure. So I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and this is my fourth year there. Before starting the PhD program, I taught high school science uh, in the Boston suburbs. Uh, I taught high school for two years. It, previous to that, I taught seventh grade for four years. So I have a total of six years worth of public school teaching experience. Uh, before that, I was in a, a different graduate program getting a master's of education degree in science education. Uh, and. Actually, before I started that master's degree, I worked for two years at an outdoor school. Uh, this was in New Hampshire. And this is a kind of place that had a high ropes course. And I would take students on hikes and we'd learn about the uh, animals in the streams and the ponds. and. Uh, that sounds like New Hampshire yep, to me. Uh, <laughs> That's just about the most accurate description of New Hampshire. Yep. So I did that for a couple of years. Uh, before that was when I did my bachelor's degree. Uh, and so I have a bachelor's in biology. Uh, and in some ways, I've come full circle now that I'm back in a PhD program in biology because uh, my original track as an undergrad was getting some research experience and preparing myself for a biology research career. Then I got very excited about education and did that for what ended up being 10 years. And then I decided uh, I wanted a new challenge and I kind of came back to where I had started 
on the uh, biology research career track. So, so is it sufficient to say that you have been in school your entire life? I guess so. Yeah, either as a student or as a teacher. Um, well, I guess one way to measure it is that I have never been able to take a vacation in September. Ah, yep, that would. So one thing about the measure. academic calendar is September is always a busy month with the school year starting. So I have, yeah, yeah, I've always yeah, uh, had some some fresh beginning in in September or maybe late August on the academic calendar. So. Yeah, I've, I've been on, on that yearly routine for my whole life. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine even as a graduate student, I know that work kind of quiets down in the summer. Yeah, I usually don't have to teach classes or the email flow is like a little bit different. So you, you got that kind of a very predictability in your schedule. It's got a very periodicity to it. Right, right. And uh certainly know that other careers are not like that at all, where the uh the time of the year is is not quite so consistent as the academic calendar so what happens when there's a day when i don't get a month off for you know the holidays for for the winter yeah yikes so uh, we today are not really going to talk about what you research um yeah maybe one day but uh, today's not uh, talking about your research today we are kind of interested in this ridiculously long educational journey that you've had because you ha you have done it all as far as education goes you are currently trying to get a phd you have taught high school you've taught middle school you have a master's already in education you started out in biology uh and and you have been at this for so very long but these from the traditional you know standpoint are not very connected fields we, as grad students in, you know, PhD programs, we typically don't see education as a hard science. What can you say about this? What, what brings you from education to PhD? So there's a number of directions I could go, go with that. So uh, I guess I'll, I'll take things one at a time. So um, one of the, the big differences from teaching at the middle and high school level to shifting to being a graduate student is uh, as a teacher, a lot of it is about building relationships with other people and getting to know your students and what they need and, and going through this, this annual journey, if you will, with a set of students and trying to, to meet them where they are, get to know them, and by the end of the year, bring them to some place where they're farther along than when you first met them. Uh, and so the, the primary place that my energy went as a teacher was in building those relationships and doing what I could to help these other people. And shifting to a graduate student career now, it's all about me. And it kind of, you kind of have to be selfish to get uh to, to make it through a phd program um it's less about getting to know and, and helping out groups of people and more about getting to know yourself and kind of mastering yourself and pushing yourself to do something very hard uh and achieving this this distant goal uh that's quite a different mindset than the the teacher mindset so 
there's that piece of kind of the, the shift from being about working with groups of other people to primarily being about working for yourself. And as a graduate student, there are people that you have to please, particularly your advisor, and, and you have to meet certain deadlines and, and milestones. And so there is some of that. Uh, and there's also teaching that's part of at least my graduate program. Uh, I do teach some courses as a graduate student, so I have uh, not lost touch with that sort of activity. But the actual dissertation project where I have to produce some original scientific research, that's all on me. And there's a few people that are sort of there making sure I'm making some progress, but it's nowhere near the same sort of level as teaching high school where not only do you have to work with your students and, and meet the needs of your students, but there are administrators in your school that have demands. There are the parents of those students that have their own demands. And so as a teacher, there are many, many people that you are working to, to meet the needs of. And so that's a big piece there. So can you remind me the, the original question so I can, can go in, in the, to, into another aspect of that? <laughs> yeah, you, you got it. You got it. Uh, side note, though, I heard that uh, sometimes it's the parents that are the most challenging aspect of the job. Do you have anything you could say about that? Yes, I, I would say that there's certainly something to that. And I need to be careful of what I say around uh -huh. that. But uh -huh. uh, <laughs> Yes, often parents can be very demanding. Uh, and there are other parents that you never hear from at all. And so there's certainly a range and it varies by community. You know, it's not the same everywhere, but I have worked in school districts where there were very demanding parents. Often they they were more demanding than the students and they, they had sometimes different goals than, than their own kids had. So that's yeah, certainly so a, a difficult part of the job. and. One of the things that was very refreshing about moving on to graduate school and teaching undergraduates is the, the law in the U.S. Uh, called FERPA, which is basically the educational privacy. Uh, if a parent of an undergraduate student emailed me and said, can you tell me my, my son's grades? I would say, no, it's against the law since they are technically an adult and, uh, they, that is private so totally different from middle school and high school where the parents are down your your neck all the time wanting to know their students grades so there's certainly uh, that pressure uh about teaching so yeah and yeah. It, it seems from what you're describing teaching it almost seems like you're in kind of a service position where you have to kind of meet the needs of a lot of different groups of people. You got the students who they have to learn what they have to learn. You have the administrators who want to see, I imagine, test scores and engagement. You have the parents who have their own set of expectations. So I imagine balancing all of these has to be like, I don't know, like a circus act. It's incredibly challenging. I have so much respect for teachers and yeah, uh, rightfully so really to be honest, find uh, many of the the great high school, middle school teachers to me are 
so much more talented people than some of the the most advanced scientists. Well, it's in a different way, but no, no, I I, I agree with as, what you're in saying. terms of being well-rounded human beings. Teachers are just incredible that they can balance all of these things that that you're alluding to, and uh, a really prominent scientist in a particular field might be incredible at some specialization in there. They're really good at analyzing this type of data, but in terms of balancing these various aspects of being a, a well-rounded person, scientists don't always have that. And there certainly are scientists that that can do many of these things, but uh, teachers, you, you kind of, if you can't balance all of that, you just don't make it. So yeah, teachers absolutely. that have been around for a while are incredible people. Yeah, you have to have a, a set of, you know, skills. You have to know what you're talking about, but you also have to have this incredibly wide set of social and personal skills. Yeah, classroom management, also making information interesting. And this, this brings me to one science teacher that I had in, in eighth grade. I remember him. He made science so much fun. Like, he was that science teacher that you see in, like, after-school specials that had, you know, like, these demonstrations and props and toys and games, all of these things. And I was in a public school, and I remember thinking back then, like, oh, yeah, well, this is how I see science on television. But I don't think I realized how lucky I was to have the opportunity to have a, a science teacher that was so passionate about what he was doing. Yeah, and, and certainly that's a big piece of being a successful teacher is if you have that enthusiasm as they say, enthusiasm is contagious. And middle and high school students, they they are very perceptive human beings. And they know if you're faking it. And they also know if you're genuinely enthusiastic, they will pick up on that. So uh, yeah. that's certainly an aspect. Of course. And I'm not going to lie, I did love the days where we would just, you know, roll in the TV on the cart. You know, that kind of ages me very well. Uh, roll in that TV, that big old screen, and they would just play an episode of, like, Bill Nye, the science guy. Loved those days, uh, but, you know, that that is, on the other hand, um, let's just call it a device that some teachers use. Yeah, but so much of teaching is meeting the needs of the students and adjusting day-to-day, because -day, it's day in and day out, you're you keep going in the same classroom and you don't know you, you may have some energy on a tuesday but by friday it's just yeah not gonna be able to, to pull off an amazing lesson out. then <laughs> i bow out most weeks around thursday like i yeah. can't imagine having to do are you kidding me oh god so you know something about running an engaging class and using kind of less traditional lecture style teaching to get people to understand science. What can you tell us about that? So one of the things that I did was uh, make some song parodies. Of course. And so for better or worse, a lot of basic science courses, especially biology, end up being a sort of glorified vocabulary test. A lot of it is learning words. And as I'm sure you know from pursuing an advanced degree in science, there's way more to it than just knowing the words. But if you don't know the words, you're not gonna be able to get to the next step. So you have to learn a, a certain vocabulary 
to be able to advance in science. And that can be so boring if a teacher just gives you a list of words and you have to memorize the words and there are these technical jargon type terms that you would not use in your normal life. That is not very exciting. So, uh, and I'm certainly not the first person to have tried this, but I thought it would be much more exciting for students if I took some of these technical terms that are not very fun words, but put them into a familiar song and brought them to life that way. And so I wrote a, a handful of parodies of popular songs that the students recognized. And I changed the words to include these science terms that I wanted them to be exposed to. And uh, one of the realities of learning vocabulary is you need to be exposed to the word multiple times in multiple ways to really master it. And so if one of those ways is you're having fun singing this song and you're hearing the technical term multiple times, I think there's value in that for, for learning vocabulary word. And even beyond that, there's a lot of value in managing the classroom and building a community in your classroom where just seeing how excited you were about this idea, students like this and it helps to build a classroom environment where students have fun and they look forward to being in that class. If they know that once in a while we're gonna sing a song instead of just reading boring words, then that goes a long way towards uh, helping you to build a good relationship with students. So there's a lot of value in that. I think there's some value in multiple exposures to these vocabulary words. The main thing is that it's a lot of fun. And that is something that years after I've had students in my class, they will say one of the things that really sticks out in their mind is those song parodies that we did. So wow. there's that, tremendous value fun. in that having a, a, a really memorable experience like that. So yeah, and I mean, it connects with people on like an incredibly different level. It's not like you were parroting 1950s show tunes. You know, you, you were choosing songs that, uh, to the best of my knowledge of what I've seen that you've done available online, uh, <laughs> was like a, I saw Gangster's Paradise as a, a parody of, what was it? It was Protist's Paradise? Yes, yes. So I, I don't even know what a protist is. Can you define that real fast? Well, it's a basically pond creature. Uh, a microscopic little thing that would live in the the water mostly so they're they're mostly one-celled organisms that most of us don't think about because they're so small we can't see them uh without a microscope but you take yes. a little bit of pond water and look at it through a microscope there's this whole world of strange looking creatures swimming around and many of those are are classified into this group called the protists which is sort of this catch-all term for these strange, tiny, mostly swimming creatures. Uh, and they have lots of strange names, a lot of technical sounding words. And so one of the reasons I, I picked the, the protists unit to write a song parody for is there are all these words that are difficult to learn. And so I thought by singing about them in a, in a fun song would help bring these words to life. So. That was one reason I, I picked that one. Uh, I did another song parody that included the parts of the cell. 
So uh, inside of the cells that are the basic unit that makes up all living things, there are various parts. And just like in a city, you have different buildings that have different jobs. The, the cell has these different parts that have different jobs. And so there's the mitochondria that uh, produces much of the energy for the cell. And so, but the word mitochondria is not a word that you're going to encounter much in your, your daily life. And so putting a word like that into a song parody was not only fun, but I like to think help the students to remember those complicated words. Yeah. Now another thing that I love about song parodies is they are in essence, like a time capsule of what is popular at that period of time. So you look at these old videos of song parodies and you're like, wow, I remember when that song was like amazing. I think I was in middle school and this wasn't science, but I think it was a history class where we wrote a parody to um, Black Eyed Peas' My Humps about the um, the blue dye that they made in the South. It was like called Blue Gold or Blue Indigo, something along those lines. I mean, and to this day, I very much think about that whenever I hear the song My Humps by Black Eyed Peas. I, I think you bring up another aspect of it that's really important, that we can have this, this emotional connection with a song in a way that you would not get just from, from reading an article. Even if, if it's an incredibly well-written article, it's not going to be the same kind of emotional connection as a song that has all these different ways that it connects with your brain. And so, yeah, some of the songs that I have turned into parodies, when I hear them on the radio now in their original form, I think, oh, that reminds me of that time we studied whatever. So... Yeah, there's certainly value in uh, giving you that connection to something uh, and helping you remember it down the line. I mean, potentially that's what's missing from science communication. Not enough song parodies. <laughs> so then what what do you have to say about the, the total effectiveness of these song parodies? Would you say that they're doing their job? So I think there's some value to help learn vocabulary and maybe... That's more in the short term. I do have some anecdotal evidence from students that said, when I was taking the exam, I remembered that word because it was in the song and it helped them get a question right on the exam. When I've seen students years later, I don't think they could tell me the words that were in the song. But what stuck with them is that memory that they had a lot of fun in that class. And I've had some students that I've seen years after, and they said, oh, that was so great when we did that cell rap. And if I ask them, uh, and well, not that I would put them on the spot, but I have a feeling if I said, well, remember the parts of the cell that were in the cell rap? They probably wouldn't remember the words. but <laughs> They remember that it was a positive experience. So sort of there, there's the short-term benefit to helping remember words, which I, I think there's something to it. And there's this other long-term benefit to creating this good memory that, that sticks with people for a long time. So Yeah, and, and I remember the memories. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you that. Like, that's what I remember. I have no idea all of these little details that we sang about, but I do remember the instances and when I was like, wow, this was like fun. I had fun in school. I was able to learn something by not having to read textbook or what was it, popcorn reading? 
where you have to mm-hmm. each read a sentence or whatever. Hated that. Um, so this actually brings us uh, nicely into a transition into another topic that I wanted to discuss. Because you just mentioned that if you're doing these songs, you might remember it for a little bit. You remember the experience for a lot longer. But there is a dramatic change from, you know, primary education from high school all the way to secondary education. There is a gap that really exists, a gap in this knowledge. Uh, What do you know about navigating the high school knowledge versus the college and the graduate student knowledge? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think one angle I'll take with it is, for better or worse, up through middle school, high school, and I would say on into much of undergraduate, the focus is on memorizing and regurgitating vocabulary and facts. And that's sort of built into the assessment system that we have that you have to get grades for these classes. And the easiest way to assign a grade to a student is to give them a test where they regurgitate vocabulary and facts. Because that's, I know from experience, a lot faster to grade a multiple choice exam than it is to grade an open-ended, kind of because of the way the system is set up uh, up through much of undergrad Students are trained to take in a lot of information, hold that information in their short-term memory, give it back to the teacher on some kind of assessment, and then move on to the next thing, where they they do it again with a, a different body of knowledge. And there's very little actual creating of, of your own knowledge in that system. And that's a big shift going from an undergraduate student uh, to a PhD student is now there's this big switch where, yeah, you still have to know some vocabulary and some facts and there's a lot of information that you should have in your head, but you're not being assessed on how good you are at regurgitating that information anymore. You are now being assessed on, can you take that information and synthesize it into something new? Can you design a way to answer a question that no one has answered before. And you have to think in in a different way than you would have needed to up to that point to be a successful student. And there are a number of things that teachers are doing. And I could talk about a couple of things that I did to help students to think more in that way of answering questions and designing their own way to tackle questions rather than just regurgitating information. Uh, But the main focus up through undergrad is kind of taking information and spitting it back out. And then as a graduate student, I have to shift to asking my own questions and coming up with a way to answer that question in a creative and original way. And it's a a different way of thinking. Uh, And So one of the things that I did when I was teaching to try to get students to do a little bit more of that, asking their own questions and coming up with their own ways of answering it is I had this basically a a science fair activity. And that's kind of a loaded term with uh, this competition that often is 
goes around with it. But um, the way I presented it was rather than me giving you a set of facts that I want you to, to memorize and spit back, I want you to come up with your own question. And I'm not going to tell you what the question is. You have to think of it yourself. And then once you get your question, I'm not going to tell you how to answer it. You have to figure out on your own how to answer it. Uh, and for many students, that was really hard because many students are used to being told what to do. Oh, if you just memorize one, two, and three and tell me about it next week, you'll be good. But then when they said, well, what should my question be? And I respond, you have to think of your own question. And they, they haven't really been challenged to think that way before. That can be really hard. And as a graduate student right now, that's absolutely the, the main thing I have to do is I am trying to come up with a project that contributes to science with some new knowledge that no one has come up with before. And so nobody can tell me what the question is that I, I need to answer. I have to come up with that myself. And so that type of thinking where right now as a graduate student, I have to do a lot of original creative thinking um, I tried to do that a little bit with younger students by giving them these open-ended projects. Uh, but that's a big shift, even with the many experiences that, that students these days have throughout their schooling where, yeah, there's a lot of tests where you've got to memorize words and regurgitate the words. Uh, there are many teachers doing great work, uh, in encouraging students to think critically and come up with their own questions and their own ways to answer them. So there certainly is a lot of good work going on uh, in that direction. It's not necessarily enough to really prepare you for life as a graduate student where that's the thing that you're doing. So I spoke a while ago, and this is back last year, we spoke with uh, a high school science teacher, um, Jesse Bartle, and she was talking about uh, Bloom's taxonomy. You know, sort of that, that structure of learning. You, there's the memorizing, there's the knowing the facts. And as you climb up this this pyramid, it, it eventually leads you to this critical thinking idea where you're able to, you know, synthesize your own information from what you know. And there's such a large logical gap between those two. So as a teacher, how do you teach, you know, the ability to come up with your own questions? Can you even teach that kind of thing? Yeah, that's that's a tricky one because sort of by by default, you can't tell someone how to come up with their own question, <laughs> but you can provide examples and then have the students try it on their own. So there's sort of this give a demonstration first where I show them how I would approach it and I talk through how I would think through it and what's going on in my head, sort of as a way of showing this is one way it can be done. Now try it on your own and, and see if you can emulate some of that process I went through, but with a different topic now. So there's that sort of general idea that you need to give students or, or really any other person some scaffolding. So this this is an education term that think, it, think about a construction site where you're you know constructing a building and you have to get up 
to the, the second, third floor to put in the windows, whatever. So you build the scaffold so you can climb up and get to the higher levels uh, if you can't reach it on your own. So you can provide students with these scaffolds that maybe it's an example you gave and they work through the example and then they get some familiarity with how the process works. Then you present them with a new situation and because you've given them that scaffold of experience of done it before, then uh, hopefully they have better success of doing it on their own. That's one way to get at it. Is to, to give a, a more concrete example of that, uh, one of the things that I did when I was teaching high school is early in the year, I did a, a guided demonstration sort of project with this little pond that was near the school. And I asked the question, how healthy is the water in the pond? And so to answer that question, we had to go and collect some evidence and, and go through the scientific process. So before you can make a claim, you need to have some evidence to back up your claim and you need to have some reasoning for why you, you got to the claim that you did. And so started with this pretty simple question, is the pond healthy? And it's just something that the student said, okay, yeah, I, I understand what you're asking. And, but how do I answer that? Uh, we would go to the pond and we measured the amount of dissolved oxygen and we saw which types of animals we could catch in the water and we would scoop with nets. And if we found uh, certain aquatic insects in the water that were uh, sensitive to pollution, that could be a clue that the water was healthy. If they're able to survive in the pond, then it's probably healthy water. And so I went through this process with them of asking a question, going out collecting evidence, using that evidence to report our conclusion, uh, and kind of started there as my demonstration of here's how the scientific process works. Uh, then I presented them with a new situation where I gave them all some seeds. And I said, we're all going to grow these seeds. And I want you to learn something about the seeds. And I'm not going to tell you what the question is. So you saw my demonstration of, I asked the question about how healthy is the pond. Can you now transfer that process to this new situation of, I want to learn something about these seeds as they grow. What's the question I can ask? And then what types of evidence and data can I collect about these plants to answer my question? And so students might come up with a question like, what conditions will help the plants grow the tallest? And so then they design an experiment. Okay, if I change these variables, I give it fertilizer number one versus fertilizer number two, which fertilizer is going to result in, in the taller plants. The students went through that process of their own volition rather than me saying, I'm going to tell you that fertilizer one is better than fertilizer two, memorize it, tell it to me. I try to set up uh, an experience where they had to figure that out on their own. So that's one of the ways that I sort of my pie in the sky way that I was hoping uh, I could teach critical thinking in the process of science to high school students through something like that. Yeah, I mean, in its essence, you are really doing what we do every day as graduate students. You are coming up with a question and trying to figure out all the different avenues to get there. 
And that's, that's such an important skill to learn. But in every single thing that, that almost we do in our entire life. Like if I think about cooking a hamburger and I notice that it is not sticking or it's, it's sticking to the pan and it's not going to pull off the pan so I can't flip it. I'm sort of critically thinking like, well, what's wrong with the hamburger right now? How can I make sure that this won't happen the next time I cook a hamburger? We're really um, using these skills every single day. So it's really important to learn these kinds of things. I think that's uh, so interesting that you take that approach that's not the memorize this, memorize that. Because I don't remember most of that stuff. I mean, have you? what about that show, like, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? These, I mean, we probably are smarter than fifth graders, but a lot of people, they don't know the answers to these questions because it's not uh, something that we remember so well. Yeah, and, and that's kind of a whole other conversation about what does it mean to be smart and is the ability to answer trivia questions what makes someone smart? Yeah, I think 100%. there's a lot more to it than, than just knowing facts. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think that I'm pretty good at trivia, but I can't spell, and I hate reading. Oh, my God, I hate reading. You give me anything more than three pages, I will probably spend more time complaining than an average human would reading it. So what is smart? That's a really good question. And you can't really assess smart, can you? It's very hard to do, and sort of the way that the educational system is set up is we are asked to assess that but it's a very difficult thing to do. And smart looks different in different situations. So someone that has a certain type of smart that is able to read a complicated technical article and gain meaning out of this, this complicated written thing is a different type of smarts than someone who looks at a leaky faucet and is able to figure out how can I fix this leaky faucet? And I think they're both very valid ways of being smart, uh, but they are quite different. Yeah, and it's it's really problem solving in every aspect of our lives. We see it, how to fix the leaky faucet, like how to uh, really do, I mean, like honestly, anything and everything. If you are driving a car and you're thinking like if i don't want to skid on this ice how do i prevent you know sliding that's a critical thinking thing and that happens really fast or sometimes not fast enough so uh, smart is a weird kind of thing to define and uh, i think it's it's really appreciated that you are going out there and kind of challenging this traditional type of teaching and thinking in order to get people to this higher level of understanding and more or less, it's like a self-sufficiency. You're teaching and giving the ability for people to teach themselves. And that, I think, is what the, the most interesting thing out of this conversation was. Right. It's often about teaching students how to think, not what to think. Yeah, absolutely. It's that critical skill that is so tough to learn. And honestly, it's tough to exercise in our you know daily lives there's a lot of times that i would way prefer the one super quick solution rather than having to actually test a whole bunch of things before i can come to a, a balanced and critical solution certainly so what could you say from our conversation is really the moral of the story well i'll answer it this way so 
one of the common threads for me, and I think it's a common thread that makes us human, is curiosity. And the reason I became interested in science in the first place is I was curious about the world around me. And one of the reasons I became a teacher is I wanted to inspire that and nurture that curiosity in younger people. And one of the reasons I've transitioned from teaching into pursuing a graduate degree is I have this more curiosity I, I want to satisfy. And so I'm pursuing it in a, in a new way. And I think whether you're a scientist or not, we all have this innate curiosity as human beings that is so important that we stay in touch with and we don't lose. And if the way that you satisfy this curiosity is by becoming a scientist, fantastic. If the way that you satisfy your curiosity is you have a hobby of going out in, in bird watching and it has nothing to do with your your career that you're making money on, that's great too. You, you don't have to make a career out of it, but I think something that can enrich all of our lives is being in touch with this curiosity and teaching and, and learning how to think critically is such an important piece of of taking that curiosity and doing something valuable with it. Yeah, I that's beautiful. It really is. Like I'm I'm a, I'm almost to tears over here. That curiosity is the moral of the story. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. It was really a, a real pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure as well. Thank you. Jake sure had a lot to say about teaching and Honestly, the episode was lacking a lot of science rap, in my opinion, but I guess that's nothing I can really do about that. Well, maybe there is. I guess I can rap, but I won't, because that, that would just be awful. Either way, today's episode with Jake was incredibly informative on what it means to be a teacher, and what it means to be a student, and what it means to teach a student. And I guess we can say in general terms that thinking is hard, which is why I try to limit how much I think every day to 30 minutes, no more. And today I'm spending my 30 minutes on doing a thorough fact check and re-explanation of any of the topics that we discussed in this episode, because the cornerstone of a podcast about science is to make sure that we've done it right. And we know that science can change, and if it changes, we will change it. That being said, we reviewed the episode and didn't find anything that needed changing. But, hey, maybe one day it will. So until that day, or, well, until next week at the same time, I want to thank you for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.